Welcome to Only Trying to Help, the podcast where we try to help you help other people. My name is Dr. Kate Watson, and I have a really cool guest today. Uh, I'm going to make sure I don't steal her thunder, so I'm going to turn it over to you to introduce yourself. What would you like to tell us about you? I'm Betsy Byler, and I'm a mental health therapist, substance abuse counselor, and a podcaster. I'm also a mom, a crazy cat lady and a transplant from Chicago into the great North woods of Wisconsin, where it's uh, currently really beautiful and about 45 degrees. And my, I do private practice in my career and work with a lot of trauma and substance abuse clients or substance use clients. And I, I, I noticed there you said substance abuse and then kind of retracted and said substance use. Can you tell us the difference there? Sure. It's sort of a change in the field as a lot of things are in the way that we talk about them. So substance abuse has been the phrase for a really long time where I think average people would say addiction in professional circles. We tend to say substance abuse it's a really small thing, but they're not, the substances aren't being abused. We are not abusing the substance. It is not being harmed in some way. Mm. And so it's really about how someone uses substances, whether it's on that spectrum of average use, you know, no use, average use to misuse. And then we're moving into like a dependence area. And so it's just a small thing. And it's a hard transition because I've been doing this a long time. And it's sort of the difference between switching from saying patients to clients or back and forth. Yeah. It's one of those things I just stumble over a little bit on occasion, but it is moving to substance use, which I think is more accurate. And you're committed to it because you caught yourself and, 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 and just like a note for all the listeners, a lot of people reach out to me and say, well, ever since listening to your podcast, I, I catch myself saying something and I want to correct it. Folks, what Betsy did is exactly how it's done. You catch yourself, you say it a different way, and we all move on. I won't always be there to interrupt you and go, well, wait, well, what does that mean? <laughs> um, Betsy, thanks for doing your intro. You also mentioned your podcast. So what's your podcast about? Something I think that a lot of people may not know and just assume is the case is that therapists, mental health therapists and psychologists do not get trained in addiction work in school. It's not part of our competency. We don't have to learn it. It's optional at best. And when we get into practice, we find out super quick that we need more information because substance use and addiction affects pretty much everybody in some way, whether it's them, whether it's a family member, a friend, we have people in our lives that are using because using substances is as common to humans as anything else. It's been around since there were humans. Mm -hmm. And we always are going to find ways to relax, get high, have fun, do whatever. And it's a fundamental part of our lives. Well, we don't get trained in it. And so a bunch of therapists are out there and they either don't know enough 
will not ask about it because they don't feel competent. And so we have this group of people who come to therapy because they're identifying depression, anxiety, or whatever, and they don't really bring up their substance use because it doesn't seem like the place for it. Mm. And one of the things I'm really passionate about is that therapists can learn how to add substance use and addiction work to their scope of practice and that they can do so without going back to school. I believe that we have the skills as therapists to be able to work with people and that our clients want us to be able to work with all things and not have to transfer them because finding a therapist you like and then having to transfer sucks. Mm -hmm. And there's a lot of therapists in the world who probably are okay at their job, but maybe not awesome. And when you find an awesome one, you don't want to have to leave just because they find out that you've been gambling or drinking or something. And they're like, I don't know how to help you with that. So my goal is to alert therapists to this issue, help educate them and help them feel competent so that they can add this to the things that they work with and therefore treat clients in a way that is going to be more freeing and help them find more peace in their life. There's a lot there, you know, and you made me think, um, so I wear many hats, Betsy, and one of them is college professor and the students I teach are getting degrees in human services. So it's not quite psychology, not quite social work. It's sort of a, its own thing, but um, sometimes we have discussions with the students in the human services program about like, what populations do you think that you would be really good to serve and which populations do you feel like maybe you're not a good fit for like other areas Mm -hmm. of the field where maybe you would prefer not to point your career. And when people tell me, Oh, I don't want to work with people who abuse substances. I, it brings out my sarcastic side. Cause I always want to be like, how are you going to do that? (laughs) Where, where are you going to work? where you're not going to meet people who are using drugs and alcohol or, or even like addicted to gambling, as you mentioned, like what, what field is that where you're not going to encounter these problems? Um, Mm -hmm. And students look at me like, well, you asked, (laughs) Um, but you make such a good point that this is something that is just that common, not only in the work of, of, uh, helping professionals, but in our lives, we all know people who um, encounter these issues. So I'm really glad that you're here. What are some things that you think maybe you wish everyday people better understood about folks who are using substances? Um, maybe people who are not yet in that recovery phase. What do you wish the general population understood a little bit better about them? There's a couple things. And I think the first one is kind of a hard, um, hard to accept, I think, for people because of how much pain their loved one, their addict, their alcoholic has caused for them Mm -hmm. is that addiction is not a choice. And I think that's foundational to understanding and having compassion for people it doesn't mean that they're not responsible for their choices because of course they are. Mm-hmm. They're a hundred percent responsible for what they do while they're using. It's just that they chose to use, they didn't choose to get addicted. Nobody thinks that they're going to be the one to get addicted. It's our bias. Just like, I'm not going to get COVID. It's not going to happen to me. It's the exact same thing. Mm-hmm. We just think we're going to know that 
here's the line. I'm going to cross it. I'm going to pull the plug. And the trouble is, as humans, we don't do that. We overestimate our ability to pull back. And since addiction is not a choice, the person in their life that's out of hand usually is no longer having fun and it's not enjoyable what they're using. Yeah. Most of the time it's pretty torturous. They get to the place of, they have these moments of a little bit of, I don't care now because I'm high and I can't feel anything followed very quickly by, I can't get out of this cycle because when I'm not high or I'm not, when I'm not high, I'm actively finding ways to come back to this place. And that's money, that's connections, that's supply. And it, it consumes their entire life and nobody's having a good time. Yeah. Yeah. I think that's really helpful um, that people are responsible for their actions, but they did not choose to get addicted as a, mm-hmm. as an important distinction. Um, and I'll bet you get a lot of pushback when people say, when, when people hear you say addiction's not a choice, I'll, I'll bet a lot of people kind of give you a look like, wait, what are you talking about? But I think your explanation fills in some of those gaps that you might you might choose to behave in a particular way, but the addiction itself and the patterns that follow is not something a person really signed up for. Um, we often think better of ourselves that mm-hmm. we that we wouldn't fall into that, you know. And you know, I, I'm trying to make a connection between our previous episode where, um, you know, I, I had my good friend Ro come on and talk about helping people who are in recovery. And now we're talking about people who may not yet be in recovery. They're, they're before that. They haven't yet decided to take a different path or, or maybe decided is it even the right word. They haven't yet entered this different path. Um, and sometimes helpful people in their lives, their friends and family members, or I should say want to be helpful people, <laughs> well-meaning people in their lives, care so deeply about them not using drugs and alcohol anymore that they will take to some desperate measures. And sometimes we want to shake a person and we want to yell at a person and we want to come down really hard on them and say, what are you doing to yourself? And look at what you've made of your life and you're ruining your children's lives. And I, I'll, I'll, I see you nodding. So I'll I'll bet you agree with me that these are not the best approaches (laughs) to help somebody who you really want to, to be there for. Um, and, and my next question is one of those questions you could probably talk about for months. If I gave you the time, I'm going to ask you in a couple of key points, what's a better approach. So I know that the desperation that people have drives them to try to find anything to spur someone into action, which is really normal. Mm -hmm. We all have that feeling of fear that we're going to lose a loved one because we know that addiction is fatal. I mean, truly, for most people who are using, they quit or they die. Mm -hmm. And I don't know if you want to say that. I don't know if you want to cut that out because it's harsh, but it's no, it's okay. The reality is that addiction is fatal and you are right to be worried. The problem is if love of others, if love of family and support were enough, people would get sober. And so there's a, I don't know if it's a meme, not necessarily a meme. There's a quote going around on the internet about addiction 
um, being lack of connection and that connection is the opposite of addiction. And while I understand the sentiment, I think that's dangerous because that's not true. People can be connected all over the place and still be actively using, or they can feel alone in a crowd of people. Addiction is its own thing. And while connection is necessary and is helpful in recovery and getting rid of connection to using friends is also necessary, it's not a cure-all and it's not going to fix it. And if they, I hear this a lot, I've worked with a lot of clients in treatment over the years and run a treatment program. And I hear them all the time about their children, about how they feel about their family, friends, people they've let down. And it is not enough. It is never enough to get them sober and keep them sober. Mm -hmm. It may be a contributing factor and it's not going to work long-term because we cannot make changes for another person and then keep them long-term. Yes, there might be an exception to the rule, but generally this is what I've seen. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So you're talking about, you know, what the things that just may be helpful a little bit, but aren't enough. It's not Mm -hmm. enough. It's not a cure-all. And I think that's that's appropriate here because the audience for only trying to help includes just sort of everyday people who are often looking for like, what's that lever I can pull that will make all the difference. Um, and, and there probably isn't a lever you can pull that will make all the difference. There really isn't a, a, a switch we can flip or a string or, you know, any, any one little thing that will be the cure-all. Um, but there may be little things we can do that would probably, I guess, do, do more good than harm. Um, and so I'm searching for like, what could the concerned parent or the concerned friend keep in mind as like, this is not the cure-all, but it's better than this, you know, on my, on my right-hand side is not something that's going to solve everyone's problems, but it's certainly better than what's on my left-hand side. Any thoughts about that? So I think that telling them how much they've hurt you isn't necessarily helpful if you've already done it. If you're going to talk with them and you want to share with them because you haven't done so before, I think that's legit. I think you do it in a way that is, say, when they're mostly sober, that you can say, I need to let you know this. I need to tell you how this affects me and the family and whoever else. And because of that, I need to set some limits to protect us. But I also want you to know that we love you and we believe that when you're able to, when you're ready to, that you can do better and we're here and leaving it there as opposed to kind of continually bringing it up because what that does is just trigger shame and they're going to isolate more. And I also am really strongly a proponent of setting limits for the people who are on the other side, who are not using with, you know, who are not using problematically so that they can not get sucked into the vortex of people who are using because that's chaos. And often family and friends get into overextending themselves in numerous and sometimes shocking ways to try to save someone, so to speak. I think that 
that is not possible. There is no way to buy them out of their addiction, uh, rescue them out of their addiction. There are ways to be supportive in a way that is not uh, enabling and will make you feel less nuts, honestly. Yeah. Because working with someone and loving someone who's using is crazy making. Like it is so all consuming. I do think it's okay to share with them how you feel and then letting it drop, knowing that they know this and that when you set limits, this is where it's coming from, I think is really one of the best things that you can do. It's the most honest rather than a reactionary, like you can't see the family because you're still using and I can't believe you would do this to us, et cetera. Yeah. Yeah. I, I, I appreciate the, you know, I'm thinking about the way you worded earlier on, like, um, I need to let you know how this affects me, but like, that's just, those are just facts, right? Like I'm just, I'm just sharing information here. These aren't threats and I'm not yelling and I'm not putting you down. I'm reporting, I'm reporting to you. This is how this affects me here. Here's the report. And if ever, and whenever you are ready to make some changes, I believe you can. And we love you still, you know, now and always. Uh, I think all of that is helpful because of what you said. You want to avoid the shaming approach. Um, And I think a lot of people in that moment of desperation think, well, if I can just make this person feel like garbage, surely if I kick them around enough and make them feel small enough, of course, they will just have a wake up call and make a change. And you know this, Betsy, I'm not saying this to you. I'm saying for the audience, Um, shame is more likely the cause of some of these problems cause I'm using with a lowercase C. I mean, there are many causes, but it is certainly not the solution to the problem. Um, and if anyone out there follows Brene Brown, that will sound familiar. I certainly didn't come up with that myself. Um, that shame isn't the solution or the treatment for addiction. It is more likely one of the causes of it. People who drink too much or even eat too much or play too many video games or spend money they don't really have often have shame in common as a thread. Um, and, and, you know, that's that's kind of old research. We've known that for a long time. And so when we think that if we make someone feel low, that's when they're going to suddenly make healthy changes in their lives. It's generally not the time people decide to make healthy changes in their lives. I would ask the audience who's listening to think of what you do when you feel really low, when you feel like crap, when you feel insignificant or like nobody cares. Most of us will go for what we are familiar with, what we are in a pattern of doing. It isn't usually the time we say, you know, I feel really bad about myself. But I think today I'm going to hit all my goals and stretch myself and challenge myself to step up and do more. Um, So for a lot of us, it's not going to the gym is what we do. We'll we'll do something less healthy instead. I I think I'm thinking about a time, Betsy, when I was um, doing a training for professionals and I was speaking about this idea of like shame sort of leads us into a less healthy path rather than a more healthy path. And this gentleman raised his hand. And he asked what I think was a very sincere question, but everybody in the room laughed. But he said, Kate, is that why every time my doctor tells me to lose weight, I leave and go get a piece of pizza? And everyone started laughing. 
And I said, hold on, wait, wait, wait. I can't know why you go get a piece of pizza. I will not pretend like I know that. I said, but by the nature of you asking it right now, while we're talking about shame, I think you know that you're sitting in your doctor's office feeling really bad about yourself. And when you get the chance to leave, you go find something that's comfortable for you. And he just nodded. He nodded along. Um, And so I just think this is helpful for people to hear because sometimes we think tough love or coming out hard on somebody will will get them to snap out of it. And we just have no evidence of that. Anything you'd like to add, Betsy? I think you're absolutely right on, on all of that, because we don't get more motivated when we feel bad. And even some of the basic therapies that therapists do to try to help change thought patterns is about changing it to a more positive, to a more even neutral, so that we feel like there's hope to move forward. Mm -hmm. And it can be really hard because we want people to be shocked into seeing how hard this is for people who love them, how much they've been hurt. We've watched shows like Intervention where this is kind of the thing. And really all that is is momentary emotional manipulation to be honest. And it doesn't last. And I'm not saying that people can't share their truth because they should. You don't have to swallow all of that. The person who you love, you're in a relationship with them in some way, and you have a right to share how that relationship is working or not working. And leaving them with a sense of all is not lost is the most important part. Because if they think that they've already fucked their whole relationship with you, then why bother? Such a good point. Such a good point that we're still here uh, when, when we can have a, a good relationship and when we can have one that makes me feel safe and valued, I'm here. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Um, now, again, Betsy, I'm not saying this to you. I don't want you to think that I'm teaching you something because you know these things, but um <laughs> Often when I go on that little speech about let's not shame people, it's so wild to me, the number of people who make a huge leap to the other extreme and they say, oh, so what are you saying, Kate? I'm just supposed to tell everyone everything's fine and go ahead and use heroin and I'm fine with it. And I'm not supposed to you know, say anything about it. So to the audience who's listening right now, if your brain just made that leap, from way on the one end of the extreme, we're saying, hey, all that shaming stuff's not so helpful. And on the other extreme, you've you've interpreted that you think we're saying just endorse everyone's problematic behavior. If you made that leap, audience, I'm going to ask you to like, take a deep breath, (laughs) relax your shoulders, like let your back rest on the chair, or if you're walking, like slow your pace for a minute, because I do find that when I talk about, Hey, let's not be shaming for people. The reaction I often get is, Oh, so you just want me to tell everyone everything's fine. Um, no, (laughs) that's, that's the whole other extreme that would also be problematic. So if you're all activated by that folks, like just settle down a little, this is just a podcast. You're okay. (laughs) And now with maybe more of an open mind, I'm hoping you can hear us say that there's a lot in between. There's a whole middle space in between shaming people 
and endorsing everything they do in the middle are a lot of options. And Betsy's been talking about some of those options, like setting limits. Um, I also think an option is to say to someone, uh, I, I think highly of you. I don't think so highly of the behaviors you've been engaged in lately, but I can make a distinction between you, the person I love and value, and some of the shit you've been doing lately that I don't love. I love you, but not the shit you've been doing lately. Um, and I think that's another thing that can be helpful is just making this distinction between a person's character and who and their identity and who they are versus some actions they have done that you do not love and value and cherish in any way. Um, and that's just another thing I think can be helpful as people are looking for language. Like, how do I even talk to this person? I think that might be one approach to take. What do you think? I think that there is a ton in that middle space and I would never ask anybody to hide what's real and what's honest about a relationship because that's what relationships require in order to thrive, in order to exist. And I want people to be able to be honest in a way that their person can hear because throwing words out and throwing your heart out for somebody trying to show them how painful this is and they can't hear you is even more painful for you because then you're left holding all of these feelings, feeling as though, well, that went badly and they didn't even hear me. Mm -hmm. It will be more satisfying is not the right word. It'll be more helpful for you to feel like the person actually heard you and you have to think about what it would be like if you were in a situation where somebody was talking to you, like your doctor or whatever it is, a more, what a more helpful way would be. Because this person is not using to hurt you. This is not about trying to say, fuck everybody in my life and I don't care about them. This is 100% about what's going on inside of them that they can't handle. And it's easier for them to just be around other people who are using because everyone else is in that same boat and they don't care about what you're doing in your life because they're too involved in their own. So when they do interact with people who are outside of that world, who know the real them, they want to feel like that's still in there, that that's still part of them. And if you can speak to that part, in just a way of stating facts. I think that's a great phrase, Kate, like that you're just stating a fact and not trying to make it hit home. Just I lay awake at night worrying if you're dead. I spend my day, you know, it's a simple fact that most people who have someone who are using are worried about mm -hmm. losing their loved one. And that does hit home. Even if you say it in a way that doesn't show the depth of pain that that is for you, they're still going to hear it. Mm -hmm. And that is going to mean more. And it keeps a line of communication open and gives them a connection outside of the using world. Mm -hmm. Because when they sever all of those, it is very hard to come back from that. Yeah. Yeah. Um. I want to really thank you for sharing all your insights, Betsy, and, and also offer you a chance to, to plug your podcast because um, some of the listeners may have had, you know, this episode and the previous one, and they're probably thinking, well, I could use a lot more on this topic. 
you know, only trying to help is about to move on to other topics. But um, if you'd like more on this topic of substance use, substance abuse, uh, alcohol use, whatever it may be, Betsy, you want to say where people can find you? Sure. So my website is BetsyBeiler.com. And it is, the podcast is called All Things Substance. It's on Apple, Stitcher, all of the podcast places. And there's close to 60 episodes and there are episodes on basics of addiction and kind of the brains, there's the brain science triggers, recovery. There's stuff about behavioral issues like gambling, porn, sex, things like that, as well as tons on different drugs of abuse that if your person is using meth or heroin or weed or whatever it is, if you want to know, and it's, my hope is to have it as unbiased as possible and always be have fact checked information Mm -hmm. because it's really hard. I think online to find information that is neutral and accurate. And so that's really my goal as well. Even if you're not a therapist, I have found that there are people who listen because they want the information. I don't really talk a ton about therapy techniques, so to speak. Mm -hmm. And so while I'm a therapist talking to therapists, I think that there's useful information. So it's BetsyBeiler.com and the All Things Substance podcast. I will link to those things from our website um, so that people can get like the spelling of your name and all that. Um, And just, I just want to say thank you again. And to our listeners, just a reminder that if you ever have questions or comments or things that you'd like to share, you can always email me at kate at onlytryingtohelp.com. Our website's onlytryingtohelp.com. And you can find us on social media, particularly Instagram. I'm probably most active there now. And the handle is at I was O-T-T-H. O-T-T-H stands for only trying to help. Thanks again, Betsy. And thanks to the audience. We'll see you next time. <laughs>